Welcome back to the program. On 9-11 of last year, the U.S. mission in Benghazi, Libya, an isolated ad hoc outpost, was attacked. A small security team from the Diplomatic Security Service was no match for the large number of jihadist forces that would attack in what our guests call a perfect worst-case scenario. This would be the first time that a U.S. diplomat had been killed since 1988 in Pakistan. Perhaps in another time, it would have brought respect for the heroics of the men who valiantly fought back to save the mission and the ambassador. Perhaps it would have brought a legitimate investigation of what happened and how we might learn from such attacks. Instead, like almost everything else today, it simply has been a catalyst for bitter partisanship, for political opportunism, and the right's continuing effort to find anything to attack the president in the administration. In that haze, we've lost sight of what really happened and why it still matters. My guests, Fred Burton and Samuel Katz, have pieced together the full story of what happened at Benghazi in their new book, Under Fire. Fred Burton is one of the world's foremost experts on security and terrorism. He's a former State Department counterterrorism deputy chief and is a vice president at Stratfor, a geopolitical intelligence firm. Sam Katz is an internationally recognized expert on Middle East security issues and international terrorism, and it is my pleasure to welcome Fred Burton and Samuel Katz here to talk about their book, Under Fire, the untold story of the attack on Benghazi. Fred, Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Great to have you here. I want to begin by setting the stage for what was going on in Libya at this particular time. In 2011, we saw the fall of Gaddafi. What had transpired in Libya, Libya in the intervening year? Fred, start with you. Well, Benghazi was uh, certainly a city that was on fire with a whole range of um, jihadist group uh, groups operating in a melting pot of of uh, all kinds of fundamentalist activity. Uh, as we chronicle in our book, Jeff, uh, Under Fire, we had a previous attack on the British consul. Uh, in a fairly sophisticated motorcade um, uh, incident. Uh, and then we also had uh, attempted bombing at uh, the uh, temporary uh, diplomatic uh, villa location in Benghazi. Uh, and uh, more importantly, as, as we put in the book, uh, Benghazi was uh, a, a nest of spies, a, a crossroads of of not only intelligence uh, operations going on uh, perpetrated by the CIA, but uh, many different foreign intelligence agencies, too. Uh, it, it was a modern-day Casablanca, so to speak, with just a whole range of different transactions, uh, weapons smuggling, uh, and so forth. One of the things that you point out is that this this urban landscape, this landscape in, in Benghazi, nobody knew who to trust, that it was this, this kind of Le Carre-esque kind of environment in which people's sides changed almost hourly. Sam? The landscape that you speak of is, is one of um, militias. It's one of gangs. It's one of foreign subversion. It's one of raging um, fundamentalism. It needs to be um, sort of explained that Libya at that time was really the capital and the and the more democratically centric um, sections of the the western part of the country where the embassies were in the capital of Tripoli and Benghazi, the eastern section of the country, where in reality um, many many fundamentalist elements of the Arab Spring had taken root and had really been bolstered. Um, by the Arab Spring and by what they saw as the resurgence of Al-Qaeda in, in North Africa. 
there was a city near Benghazi called Derna that we cover in the book mm-hmm. that for years, even while Qaddafi was in charge, was an epicenter of foreign volunteers heading to Afghanistan and Iraq. And the Libyan forces under Qaddafi tried in vain to crush this fundamentalist hub, um, and they failed. And it's believed that many of these fighters spread toward Benghazi, and you really use that that city, the lawless, the lawlessness of that city, to create the perfect um, um, trading center, the perfect travel crossroads for fundamentalist terror in northern Africa. Most countries had taken their people out of Benghazi. For the U.S., it was this, this kind of target-rich environment. There was a lot to learn, a lot to arguably accomplish there with respect to intelligence. Why were we so determined to stay the course, Sam? In the book, we, we, we cover the, the notion of a higher purpose, and we interview a former State Department agent who, when he was a young rookie out of the academy, was sent to Beirut during the Civil War. And he sent a cable back to Washington and said, um, you know, the embassy is under rocket attack, mortar fire, snipers. It's not safe. We have to pull out. And Washington sent back a cable that, sim- that, that, that squarely stated, um, we're in Lebanon for a higher purpose. And a few days later, the U.S. ambassador and the chief political officer were kidnapped and assassinated. The higher purpose in Libya was a new and fledgling nation that obviously had great oil um, reserves was strategically positioned to control much of the northern half of the continent. And it was in the U.S. strategic interest. It was in, um, in terms of diplomacy and, as we saw by the presence of a CIA annex in Benghazi, in terms of intelligence, it was in the, the broader interests of the United States to have a very firm and, and fixed position in the city. And that explains why there was the annex um, located about a mile and a half down the road from the Special Mission Compound and the special mission compound um, that was used as an ad hoc consulate by Ambassador Stevens when he visited the city. Even amidst all that was going on, Fred, we still maintain this tremendous optimism, it seemed, about what was going to transpire in Libya. I'm not so sure that is an accurate uh, depiction of, of how even Stevens portrayed what uh, was taking place there in Benghazi. I uh, I was the agent that looked into the last ambassador killed in the line of duty in 1988, uh, Ambassador uh, Arnie Rafel in Islamabad, Pakistan. He perished uh, aboard the plane crash which killed President Zia, Pakistan. And um, the, in looking at the telegrams uh, back and forth and the, and the documents that were recovered from Stephen's perception of what was transpiring there, I sense uh, a U.S. ambassador that uh, clearly uh, thought that the country was in a deteriorating security posture and uh, that although he was hopeful that things could be done, that uh, in, in retrospect you could look at the, the signposts, the, the tripwires. Uh, the, the business term in the counterterrorism community is called the warnings and indicators. The warnings and indicators were, were resonating loudly from Benghazi that the nation was unstable and that the security climate there on the ground was just deteriorating. Was he successful, was Chris Stevens successful in convincing the State Department that that was in fact the state of events on the ground in Benghazi? Fred? I don't think so. I I think that uh, uh, what happens at uh, Foggy Bottom, having lived in that world for quite some time, uh, which is the State Department headquarters, is uh, there, there is a, um, 
a a, um, a desire to defer to the boots on the ground uh, versus Washington stepping in and trying to micromanage things from afar, which at times can work to your benefit and other times it can't. Uh, I, I clearly don't think there was a tremendous amount of oversight in Benghazi because on any given day, there was 20 other posts like Benghazi around the world and to include the sucking chest wound called Iraq which was uh, uh, causing a tremendous number of diplomatic security service uh, assets to be tied up there. So uh, remember, when the military withdraws from one location, you still have all these official Americans in country, and uh, diplomatic security is saddled with protecting them. So you basically had a world on fire with uh, too many requirements and uh, not enough resources to do the job. So uh, Washington, uh, I don't think, had their finger on the pulse at all. Sam, talk a little bit about resources, and what were the security resources that were there at this mission compound on September 11th, 2012? Well, the resources have always been something of, of what's been lacking um, for the Diplomatic Security Service. It's a small agency. It operates under a, a larger umbrella in the State Department bureaucracy, and it really has an incredibly diverse and large mission with very, very few, um, very, very few men and women. And they've always traditionally been able to do um, a hell of a lot with very little. That kind of has been the characteristic of a DS agent: being um, innovative, being personable, being able to achieve great security. Um, um, achievements with, with, with very little resources behind them. They relied on local guard forces, they relied on the host nation, and we have to understand that there was really no host nation government or security services in Benghazi. On the ground in Benghazi that night were three agents, young special agents, who were pulled off of their, their domestic field office operations who were in the, in the city at, at the special mission compound to provide security, and two special agents who had come from Tripoli with um, Ambassador Stevens. So you had five young agents. They, um, they had experience overseas, but they really hadn't had the chance to, um, to learn the, through the routine process that traditionally DS agents had, had come to become expert in these hotspots. Many years ago, DS had what, what we call in the book um, the Dirty Harrys, um, very skilled former military veteran um, operators who would routinely be sent to places in the world that nobody wanted to go. In the wake of Afghanistan and Iraq, um, everybody had to go to these places, often many times, often um, sacrificing their domestic lives or, or whatever um, sense of normalcy they, they had. And that night in Benghazi, you had five young agents, um, very dedicated, very skilled, very capable, but they found themselves in a city surrounded by a city that um, all senses of law and order had disappeared, where the um, local militias that were supposed to provide assistance could be just as treacherous as those who wanted to do harm to them. And they were outgunned and outnumbered, but really for diplomatic security um, service agents. You know, this is par for the course. Fred, talk a little bit about how events started to unfold on that night. Well, this is really uh, one of these... Uh kinds of events, having lived in this world for a while, that you, you can never imagine yourself in until it unfolds. You had um, the attack commence 
with uh, a, a terrorist that, that came to the front gate, literally, and uh, demanded entry, and then stormed into the compound. And you had uh, what is called a duck-and-cover alarm activated by uh, the agents on site. Uh, you had a very uh, unheralded hero, in, in my assessment, inside what is called the TOC, the Tactical Operations Center. This is an agent that is in a small little command post with communications, and, and he's the link to the outside world as well as to the agents. And so the duck-and-cover alarm is activated, basically saying, embassy under attack, retreat to the safe haven. And so uh, that message is also uh, simultaneously relayed to the U.S. Embassy in, in, in uh, Tripoli, as well as to the State Department Operations Center in Washington, D.C. So literally within minutes of this attack unfolding, uh, the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli, as well as uh, State Department Operations Center in Washington, knows that the embassy, that the consulate, that the temporary villa is under attack. So uh, that was one thing that was quite clear. But that agent inside the Tactical Operations Center, based upon the great work by the security engineering folks inside of diplomatic security, were able to watch the terrorists move about the compound and he was the lifeline for the agents informing them where the individuals were. So uh, you had an agent inside the uh, actual villa where Stevens was sleeping and Information Officer Smith. Uh, he roused them out of bed and moves them into the safe haven. So process-wise, uh, everything worked to a fault, meaning uh, the system from an emergency react plan uh, worked as established. Unfortunately, the failure of not having fire suppression uh, equipment inside the temporary uh, villa uh, was the downfall, uh, as well as uh, not having smoke hoods on site, which are temporary breathing hoods that you place over your head. So uh, I'm convinced, I don't know how Sam feels about this, but I'm convinced that uh, that if they had had smoke hoods, uh, they would have been able to weather the storm, so to speak. Uh, I'm staring at one right now in my office that I carry with me all the time when I travel. Uh, it's an old habit uh, uh, because uh, they save lives and, and buildings that are under fire and transportation systems, and, and they're actually issued gear uh, to uh, uh, the facilities overseas. And uh, the business community actually uh, utilizes a lot of them, and there's a tremendous number of them in, in places like New York City as well. Why was there a lack of this equipment there? I mean, there was, you talk about that there was Kevlar body armor that was pre-positioned that, that Stevens and Smith both put on. Why weren't there these smoke hoods and, and various equipment to deal with this? Fred? I think that uh, what happens having worked these uh, temporary duty assignments before, remember you have agents that are, sent to do 30, 60, and 90 uh, assignments and protection, and they literally go from Iraq to places like Benghazi to back to the field office in, in uh, the United States for a while, and they go back out overseas. These are the kinds of things that slip through the cracks when there's no continuity and a lack of oversight as to exactly what you have in place. Uh, the accountability review board that was put together after the attack uh, clearly notes that uh, uh, fire suppression and smoke hoods was a failure. Uh, that's one of the things that 
that the diplomatic security needs to correct and, and is moving towards correcting that going forward. But fire is a weapon. I mean, there's brilliance and simplicity. Uh, you don't have to make a bomb. Uh, you just have to light something on fire, and you can cause a tremendous amount of damage. In fact, you, you point out, uh, Sam, that in fact burning down these embassies or burning down these buildings was sometimes more effective than blowing them up. Absolutely. In 1979, the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad, Pakistan, was, um, was set on fire and, and, um, and destroyed by a mob that, um, that stormed the, the compound. And I think that the whole notion of setting fire as an attack um, really comes into play of that fateful morning. Um, in the morning in Cairo, um, protesters had set fire to the gates and the walls outside the embassy. They were burning flags. There was a real fear that the embassy would be overrun, and if there are 25 or 50,000 protesters who want to take over an embassy and, and ransack it, there's really no security infrastructure in place that will stop them. And I think the, the fact that in Benghazi the, the terrorists resorted to fire was because of the very quick thinking and, and heroic acts of the, of the State Department agents that took Ambassador Stevens and Sean Smith to the safe haven to try and shield them, because obviously the moment the first duck-and-cover alarm sounds and gunfire is heard in the air, the, the thought is that the terrorists are looking for a high-value target, and the high-value target was the U.S. ambassador. And, and every step that could have been taken to save Ambassador Stevens' life and the life of Sean Smith was taken, and, and, and these men really wanted to protect them from harm. So when the terrorists didn't find them, when they couldn't locate them, they did the next best thing. They figured they just set the place ablaze. And the fire was horrific, and in, indeed everything inside the villa was destroyed. And ultimately we believe that both Ambassador Stevens and Sean Smith um, died from asphyxiation. Fred, what do we know about whether or not the terrorists had any kind of plan? Was, the, was there a plan to kill the ambassador, to take him hostage as, as, as you say, a high-value target? Was there any plan going in that we know of? Without a doubt, this was a orchestrated uh, attack put together by elements linked to al-Qaeda, uh, specifically Ansar al-Sharia, with probably uh, witting support by either Confederates associated with uh, one of the militias assigned to work actually on or around the compound. Uh, one of the uh, former local guards had actually been suspected of uh, bombing the, the location before. Uh, it was well known uh, that the Americans lived there as well as uh, very well known that the CIA had an outpost there. It's hard to hide uh, a bunch of burly white guys with tattoos and beards in, in a place like Benghazi and, and, and them not stick out like a sore thumb. So I've looked at a lot of terrorist attacks over the years uh, in my official capacity, and uh, this was one that was well thought of. Now, you get down into what the ultimate intentions were. Uh, having uh, interrogated terrorists and suspects before in the past, uh, I don't think we're going to know that till we actually get our hands on one, which I don't think is, is going to ever happen. But uh, I think that uh, the ultimate prize may have been to actually kidnap and hold Stevens hostage for a while 
which would have been a, you know, a remarkable kind of terrorist attack. It's been a long time since we've had uh, an ambassador kidnapped. Uh, we've had, you know, a few killed, uh, over the years, but, uh, that would have been a, a, the ultimate brass ring. But we really won't know the answer to that question until we actually talk to one of the uh, tactical commanders that put together the attack plans. Talk a little bit about what options might have been available to Stevens once the attack started in terms of whether or not there they were any support that might have been able to get there quickly enough. Sam? One of the untold stories of the attack in Benghazi was that help didn't come, and help did indeed come by way of CIA contractors and a few JSOC operators that happened to be at the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli that night. And once the word of attack came through, they immediately volunteered, um, gathered their, their weapons and gear, and, and through the tenacious work that the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli, they coordinated a, a flight, a Libyan Air Force flight, to Benghazi where they could deploy and assist. But this was a fluid attack. This was an attack that, in some cases, was over just as quickly as it began. Um, we're talking about an hour, two hours for the initial assault. And it was very difficult for anyone to provide an immediate response. I always use the analogy that Tim McCarver um, uses when calling a baseball game in that speed slows down the game. And in the case of a fluid series of events that transpire, just like transpired in Benghazi, um, the response doesn't come immediately, even if there are assets that um, are three or four hours away. Um, I think the lessons learned from um, past experiences in Mogadishu warrant that forces that come in for assistance to pull people out have the necessary backup, especially when entering a city, um, a cauldron of, of, of weapons and various um, hostile militias such as Benghazi. The, to, to summon a FES team or, or operators from Dev Group or, or Delta um, would have taken about 12 to 16 hours to get them on the ground to provide them with the adequate, adequate ground and air support that would have been required to pull people out. And by that time, um, all of the U.S. personnel that were taken from the Special Mission Compound and the CIA Annex were back in Tripoli and about to board flights to take them for, for medical treatment in Germany. Fred, talk a little bit about how long this whole battle lasted. Put it in some kind of time frame for us. Well, the initial attack, uh, I think, was uh, what Sam and I were able to reconstruct was over in literally minutes. Uh, the uh, the actual breach of the compound um, happened very rapidly. Uh, you had, uh, you know, the notifications go out and... Uh, you had uh, the series of events that led to the uh, torching the uh, the temporary uh, villa on fire, and once uh, the smoke started to fill the compound without breathing apparatus on the part of Stevens and Smith and the special agent that was inside, uh, your your time without what is called good air uh, deteriorates very rapidly. So. Uh, you're looking at two to three minutes uh, once that occurs if you're unable to get good air. Uh, the remarkable heroics of the agent that went in and out of the compound uh, was a, was amazing to me without fire protection gear, Nomex gloves or coats, uh, breathing apparatus. 
and so uh, that clearly was over in minutes. And, and I think that's a – and Sam alluded to this earlier – uh, that's one of the points that I think has been lost in the Washington theatrics of this. There, there was very little that could have been done once the place was torched to get help there in time. Uh, even with the uh, CIA personnel that, that were truly remarkable in their response from the villa, uh, they they chose to go and, and take the fight to the bad guys to try to help rescue Ambassador Stevens. So, uh, you know, the entire time frame and sequence of events was one that even with the response team from Tripoli, uh, and you can't even think in concept of a response from like JSOC in, at, at, uh, in the United States, there was literally not enough time to get people there quickly enough to help Stevens and Smith. Now, uh, you move into the... Uh, the several hours uh, until the mortar attack started, and it's still one of those academic kind of arguments as to whether or not, uh, and this is something that literally you would have to game board at the, at the National War College, in my assessment, uh, you know, from the, t- the moment that the uh, team evacuated to the CIA uh, safe house area until the mortar started to come, is there a ability to get a team there fast enough to do something? Uh, I think on paper, probably, but I think logistically and reality based on the environment, probably not. And I think that this is a notion that Americans have in general based on movies and fiction novels that uh, we are capable of these Superman kind of uh, heroics bringing people halfway around the world to to save the day. Uh, And it's just not true. Uh, you know, the logistics of trying to do one of these things in a foreign environment is one that you can't move people quickly enough. Uh, I think the first meeting with uh, uh, Pineda uh, at uh, the Pentagon and his staff was three or four hours after the Benghazi uh, villa was uh, set on fire. So it's just not, the, the system is not designed for a speedy response or for cabinet-level officials to quickly make decisions. I I think people have this notion that the president sits around his desk and makes decisions on on things like this. Uh, Those are all pushed down uh, usually to what is called the deputies committee, the deputy secretary of state, the deputy secretary of defense. These are folks that are very operationally geared and and they're saddled with putting together the tactical response to just about everything that happens in the world. Why wasn't there help coming forthcoming from some other friendly diplomatic security forces? You talk about the Italian ambassador who was literally sitting at a cafe watching as all of this began to unfold. Sam? Well, the uh, it's safe to assume that if the U.S. presence in the city was lightly defended, that the other nations had even fewer assets on the ground and had their own little arrangements made with the local militias. And there really wasn't um, a go-to force. Um, there, wasn't the, um, there really wasn't someone on the ground that you could call, you dial 911 and expect them to come with lights and sirens. Even the friendly ambassadors um, were, were not in a position to summon their local security staff um, nor did they have a mandate probably from their own capitals. The, 
the city really was was lawless, and I think um, that underscores the very dangerous element of operating inside a city like that. There, um, in, under the Vienna Convention, the security for foreign diplomatic posts is the responsibility of the host government. Well, there was no host government. Every diplomatic outpost in the city, be it the Turks or the Italians or whoever was was left, had made some sort of arrangement. Um, and by terms of arrangement, I guess the assumption could be made that they paid someone off to make sure that attacks didn't transpire against them. And in all reality, um, in the world of terrorism and in the world of, um, of of striking on a symbolic day, there is no bigger um, and juicier target than a U.S. ambassador, a U.S. diplomatic compound, and clearly nothing more tempting to a terrorist than a CIA base. So there, there were all these very tempting targets inside the city, and there really wasn't a coordinated um, arrangement in place to work with other um, uh, other diplomatic posts. We um, we spoke to a former State Department agent that had served in Southwest Asia in a very dangerous location in a city where anti-American protests and attempts to storm the consulate um, were almost weekly um, on Fridays following um, Friday prayers. And they had averted countless Benghazis by establishing a close relationship with the local police, by working with the local uh, diplomatic community so that in case there was trouble, people would come and try and assist them or help the Americans escape. But one of the the, the, the the important factors to remember from Benghazi was that these agents were there on a TDY assignment, TDY standing for temporary duty. And they didn't have time to cultivate relationships with local militia commanders like the regional security officer at an embassy elsewhere in a dangerous location would. They were there for maybe 30 days. They were there for maybe 60 days. They were they were dispatched from a home office. They were inside a city that was full of targets. They were tasked with protecting an ambassador who was very energetic and very eager to press the flesh. Their schedule was exhausting. And we we use the phrase that's uh, that's common in the diplomatic security service of threat fatigue when when you're in a city that's completely engulfed with with hostiles uh, you become fatigued to the to the minute by minute um, threats and it's very difficult to maintain one's adrenal adrenaline level forever and this clearly is, is something that that hasn't been discussed that the the guys there were isolated on their own and they found themselves um, in the crosshairs of a very serious terrorist um, operation. And Fred, finally, what do we know about the planning of this attack and, and who might have been responsible at the highest levels within these various terrorist organizations? Well, that's an interesting point. Uh, we know uh, that there's been several suspects that have uh, been the subject of sealed indictment that have been identified uh, the FBI has um, actually sent out uh, pictures of, of what they call unsub, unsubs, unidentified subjects, uh, in an effort to identify who some of them are based on some of the DVR footage to, on the compound. Uh, the interesting part to me, having managed the State Department Rewards for Justice program in the past, is that the State Department has failed to offer a reward for the capture or what is called a favorable resolution, uh, which could include even a drone strike on some of the suspects, uh, and, and we don't know why. I, we've heard from some of our contacts that 
that's tied up with the politics. I I find it um, uh, shocking that here we are almost a year later and we still don't have a State Department reward offer uh, for bringing the suspects to justice. Um, that's what I think of one of the Washington failure points here. Uh, that would go a long way to uh, bring about the uh, capture of the individuals involved if we could offer a large amount of money uh, to uh, have individuals uh, brought in or bring information to the attention of the State Department uh, or the FBI. Uh, but part of the process is the, the dysfunction itself within the State Department of uh, how um, these kinds of cases are managed. So that's the, that's the one thing that really needs to be fixed and fixed quickly. And is it too late to really begin to bring whoever was responsible for this to justice at this point? In my assessment, yes. I think the only uh, choice that the U.S. government is going to have uh, will be targeted assassinations of the individuals that perpetrated this because there is no Libyan government to bring the individuals to justice to try them. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of will or desire either on the part of the Libyan government to do that. Um, so I think the U.S. intelligence community will will be saddled with hunting the suspects down and killing them. Fred Burton, Samuel Katz. The book is Under Fire, the Untold Story of the Attack in Benghazi. Fred, Sam, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 